This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, giving you the opportunity to get involved and make your community a better place for seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's a story of money, family, denial, and deliverance. I talked with author Monica Parker about, oops, I forgot to save money. And the election is tomorrow and the polls have the liberals and conservatives nearly tied. I talk with conservative leader Aaron O'Toole about what he is offering older Canadians. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Early CT scans are responsible for a huge decline in lung cancer deaths in Britain. A new study has found that screening both smokers and ex-smokers could drastically reduce deaths by up to 16%, with early scans. The findings from the UK lung cancer screening trial have prompted renewed calls from experts for the government to bring in routine screening across the UK of all those who are at risk because of their smoking history. Lung cancer is the number one cause of cancer death, both in Britain, where it kills about 350,000 Britons each year, and here in Canada, where the annual death toll is over 21,000. Businesses like restaurants and retail stores have reopened, but when will Torontonians return to the office? According to a new survey, Toronto ranks 18th out of 23 North American cities when it comes to going back. Only Ottawa, Oakland, California, and Miami had lower office attendance as recently as last week. According to the Vitality Index, foot traffic in Toronto is still 86% lower on average than it was before the pandemic. Ottawa is down 90% in the same period. An 80-year-old Kansas City man is uniting gardeners around the world after he was told to mow down his garden. Dennis Moriarty planted 1,500 square feet of wildflowers in front of his home to attract pollinators, bees, butterflies, and hummingbirds. If he doesn't trim it back, the city may drag him to court. Moriarty was shocked when he was given a warning this week for violating a city code that prohibits the overgrowth of weeds and noxious plants. So he decided to sow some social media seeds. The Army veterans' call to action has reached thousands around the globe who are retweeting his message. Sylvester Stallone's movie memorabilia will be going up for auction in December. The sale is expected to raise around $1.5 million from nearly 500 items in Stallone's personal archives, including costumes, props, scripts, and notebooks from the actor's biggest films, including the Rocky and Rambo franchises. According to Julian's auctions, Stallone's boxing gloves from Rocky III have an estimate of ten dollars to $20,000, and the handwritten notebooks about the first four Rocky films are priced between forty dollars and $60,000. 
Today is Mr. Lawrence Brooks's 112th birthday. You are my sunshine, my only son. The oldest World War II veteran in the United States has just celebrated his 112th birthday. Lawrence Brooks served in the U.S. Army after being drafted in 1940. After returning home to Louisiana after the war, Brooks married and had five children. His family now includes 13 grandchildren and 22 great-grandchildren. Speaking from his home at the New Orleans Veterans Medical Center, Brooks offered this advice to others. Serve God and be nice to people. I'm Libby Steimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Oops, I forgot to save money. The book title captures a conundrum that many people, especially women, face. It's a big problem that author, actor, and screenwriter Monica Parker owned up to and overcame. We talked about her story. I just found it interesting that you went through a memoir to talk about not having saved money. Is Would you say that... It's your biggest regret, or at this point, the chickens have come home to roost? (laughs) So the reason I wrote it as a memoir, there's a million dry um, financial books out there with people who know what they're talking about. I I have 10,000 hours at least in not knowing what I'm talking about when it comes to money. So I thought that the history and the story would be more true to who I am and, and my awakening. Because I actually think that if your family hasn't had, um, doesn't impart financial uh, information or wellness to uh, me, to a child growing up, you're not going to grow up knowing very much. And, you know, obviously there are extenuating circumstances. My mother was a survivor of the war and a single mother. My father was not in the picture for that long. And my mother worked really, really hard her whole life, and she had a very high-end career, but it was a career that was so labor-intensive. She was a couturier, fancy dressmaker, and I, she was always borrowing from Paul to pay Peter. I became an actress because I think I learned to do voices to take these phone calls that would come along from these finance companies. <laughs> And I would say, hello, no, 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 you've got the wrong number. Uh, You do that very well. (laughs) So uh, are you saying that in in terms of uh, finances, uh, you've got some version of uh, intergenerational trauma? I've never called it trauma, but it's not a bad word for it. I mean, it's just, you know, it's what you grow up with. It's what you know and and. My life was, my mother lived very large. We lived high-end always because part of it was to attract the kind of clientele that she needed, but literally she couldn't afford her life. And we always lived in the on the edges of the very best neighborhoods because my mother wanted me to go to the best schools and be around the people that she thought were the right people for me. And frankly, when I moved to Los Angeles, where I lived for a very long time. We lived in Beverly Hills. We're actors and artists. And sometimes, you know, it's not that I didn't earn money or that we didn't earn money. We did. But we didn't save money. It's a big difference. Is it a matter of getting up one morning and realizing that you just haven't prepared yourself? I think it's, it's yes. I mean, I think there's some sort of awakening when you start realizing, okay, so I am 
in my late 60s, and I don't know how long I'm going to live. I'm married to an artist who cares less about money than I do. It's not like I have a partner who is ready to jump on board. Um, and, And he's a talented man and works really, really hard. He's a designer and he has, but he has private clients. It's like I married my mother in the male version. Like any artist, your work is so labor intensive. By the time you get your money in, you've already spent it. So I decided one morning, pretty much, I needed to take this more seriously and and I was going to do it and I wasn't going to pretend anymore and I wasn't going to pull the blanket over my head. I was going to face this reality and say, how do I find my way through this? Well, in the way that everybody has to. I I had never made a budget in my entire life. I'd never, ever thought about how I spent money. I just did. I love to travel. I love to go to I like pretty things. I'm going to have to make a list of the things that I don't need and that I have plenty of. And it's sort of a, a slight Marie Kondoing of my life, getting rid of things, discovering that we need less. The pandemic has certainly contributed to that. So I started putting money away. I started, I stopped spending foolishly. I was more conscious of how I spent money and what I spent. I never looked at a price of anything. I go to the grocery store. If I liked it, I threw it in the cart. I grew up. It took me a long time. (laughs) You have a scene where a friend of yours uh, tells a mutual friend, really screams at her and tells her that she's being irresponsible and that there will be a day when she can't just pick up a few extra jobs as uh, artists and people in the gig economy, uh, they have the same problems. I don't know what the answers are except downsizing, and no one wants to really do that. But again, I go back to the pandemic. I feel like we all know we need less, and I do think that the gig economy is entrepreneurial, and a lot of really interesting things have come out of this time where you can self-start and create something, a need, fill a niche. It could be anything from dog walking to knitting hats. I mean, I literally am making that up. But but whatever it is, there are ways to make money. Have you turned all of this around? Oh, yeah. Definitely. I, I mean, I am so... It is an awakening. And also, somewhere in all of this, it becomes... Uh, the word fun isn't exactly it, but there's such a sense of... I don't know, pride in being responsible and being awake to seeing how much money you have, what you can afford, what you can't afford. And this isn't to say that, you know, we're not all in sticker shock about how groceries are suddenly tripled. So, you know, my fancy ways have had to be curtailed. I get that. That was Monica Parker, author of Oops, I Forgot to Save Money. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, the man who is giving Justin Trudeau a tight race. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting to hold politicians accountable for better health care. Find out more at carp.ca. When 
When the election was called, he was unfamiliar to most Canadians and not especially popular, even with Conservatives. But Aaron O'Toole has led his Conservative Party to a dead heat with Justin Trudeau's Liberals, at least according to the polls. I talked with him earlier this week about his plans for older Canadians. The first wave of the pandemic, I was the first politician to call for the use of the military in our long-term care to give extra support to deal with a crisis where we saw the gaps exposed. This is the difference between having a prime minister like Mr. Trudeau, who reads what is given to him, or someone like me, who served in the military that's used to adapting. And what we need to do is fill the gaps that were exposed in long-term care, uh, especially in Ontario and Quebec. But this is an issue across the country. And we're putting $3 billion specifically into uh, infrastructure improvements in long-term care facilities that the provinces can draw on. That's in addition, Libby, to our record 10-year investment of almost $60 billion in our public health care system. We want to influx a lot of resources into our system to fix the gaps and to secure our public health care system. The issue about Ottawa controlling things or, or tying things is is actually not how our system works. We need to build partnerships again in Canada, not have uh, Ottawa fighting various premiers like we've seen with Mr. Trudeau. We need to work together. We need to fill the gaps in long-term care especially, and we're putting the funds and the impetus to do this. And Ottawa can say whatever it wants. It's the provinces that are the lead here, so we're going to give them the tools to make the, the fixes needed. But if there are no earmarks and and uh, you don't hold them to it uh, in terms of getting the money, it just doesn't seem to happen. I, I I don't agree. I think every province has identified this as a critical gap area. Libby, our, our country wasn't ready for a pandemic like this. And in fact, in the months before the pandemic, Mr. Trudeau shut down our pandemic warning system for goodness' sake. So the federal government did a terrible job at the beginning with the border. With, uh, with PPE masks, they were giving them away to China, for goodness sake, at a time where we should have been getting ready, stockpiling up here. So the federal government has to do what it does well and do it better. And then the provinces, they all want to improve their systems. So what we're going to do is be a funding partner, as I said, with that $3 billion fund to improve the infrastructure, the physical long-term care homes. Then we're also going to give a lot more predictable long-term funding for our healthcare system to allow provinces to come up with multi-year plans to fix this. And we will partner with them. We will uh, we will help wherever we can. But Ottawa does not administer the health care system, and that's just a simple reality. So I think Mr. Trudeau plays a lot of politics here, but as we've seen, he never delivers on anything, from uh, budget commitments to, to boil water advisories. He always fails. Beyond the money, our spend is among the highest of the OECD uh, countries, and and the outcomes are among the lowest. So doesn't that show that we just can't leave everything to the provinces? Well, you know, this is something that uh, I think is a bit of a, a false argument. And what your listeners really need to know is, what can the federal government do? It can give federal funds in a long-term predictable fashion for the provinces. The federal government is actually in charge of health care for Indigenous Canadians and for the military and veterans. The federal government hasn't been doing a good job in that regard. If we look at the calls to action in the Truth and Reconciliation Report, Indigenous health care outcomes have, have not been going up under Mr. Trudeau. The first question I asked as opposition leader was on Indigenous health care. So what the federal government needs to do is do its area of jurisdiction well, 
and then partner with the provinces wherever possible because they are actually in charge of delivering on the services. And let's work collaboratively to see all boats going up and let's address the gaps in long-term care. Let's give relief to the frontline nurses and doctors who are at burnout. This will be my approach, a federalism of partnership as opposed to Mr. Trudeau using the provinces and playing them off one another. The Liberals announced their version of a mandatory vaccine policy for federally regulated workers and travelers. If you're elected, will you keep it or get rid of it? Well, what I've announced is a policy that would be uh, encouraging and pushing and promoting vaccines, but for a small number that may not be be vaccinated, um, using daily rapid testing with respect to the federal civil service. And what's interesting, Libby, Mr. Trudeau tried to use this question when he launched the election. He tried to use this to divide people and wedge me. A few days later, it came out that that was the official position of the civil service. The human resources lead came out with a policy that was exactly what I just described to you. So Mr. Trudeau then hid that policy, removed it from the website because he's trying to divide people on a question of public health. I would never do that. Vaccines are so critical. It's why my wife and I videoed our vaccination process, and we both had COVID. So we all have to play a role to get our vaccination levels up, to to use all the tools, including rapid testing, masks, everything we can do to fight the spread of COVID, which is why, Libby, we should not be in an election. This election was called by Mr. Trudeau so for just, his political interests only. So no mandatory vaccine policy? No, we're going to promote. We've got a plan to get vaccines up to 90%. But this is a personal health decision. And we I often say you have to educate and inform, not coerce and force, especially because some uh, minority communities, some people that have had bad uh, interactions with our public health system, uh, Indigenous Canadians, for example, have more hesitancy because of that. We're not going to overcome that with, with coercion and dividing people and creating an us versus them. We're trying to take a very responsible but respectful approach to get vaccines up, but to use the other tools to keep uh, non-vaccinated people safe and not part of any spread. That was Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau did not respond to a request for a similar conversation. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.